Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's lecture is number 27 on the Old Testament, given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The text used today is from the Bible, 1 Samuel chapters 22 through 31, supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online, or if you prefer to listen, check it out at audible.com. Today we cover chapter 3, The Fall of King Saul. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! I'm going to talk as uh, <clears throat> loud as I comfortably can. Are you able to hear me all right? In the back? No? Yes? Okay. All right. If my voice drops too low and you cannot hear me, why, raise your hand and I'll try to project a little better. First, our priesthood bulletin that I mentioned to you, I would uh, briefly summarize uh, until we get this year's priesthood bulletins up to date. Uh, <clears throat> this one is June. Women and girls dress. Nothing about the fellows, but that came later. This statement on women's and girls' dress was recently approved by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. The Church has not attempted to indicate just how long women's or girls' dresses should be, nor whether they should wear pantsuits or other types of clothing. We've always counseled our members to be modest in their dress, maintaining such standards in connection therewith as would not be embarrassing to themselves, their relatives, their friends, or their associates. We have advised our people that when going to the temple they should not wear slacks or miniskirts, nor otherwise dress immodestly. We have not, however, felt it wise or necessary to give instructions on this subject relative to attendance at our church meetings, although we do feel that on such occasions they should have in mind that they are in the house of the Lord and should dress and conduct themselves accordingly. Now that's the spirit of the brethren. They sort of let us find out for ourselves what is a little on the bizarre side and uh, um, maybe a, an expression of uh, a flamboyant feeling that we suddenly had when we scooped up something out of the closet. But... Um, <clears throat> It's sort of a maturation, it's a maturing process, and um, the, the guidelines, I think, are very sound. Now, we've set up some standards here on campus, a little more strict than that, and yet they're, they're rather generous, too. Uh, the object being to have plenty of freedom of expression in, in dress and, and um, styles and one thing and another, up to the point where it, number one, is... Um, um, a spectacular sort of thing, or number two is a, a symbol of defiance, of rebellion. It's not the thing that is important, it's the attitude behind it. And, and it's been a great spirit. I've watched it here at BYU, especially since uh, 1963 when um, things began to go in different directions. Um, and the, the school and the church has been under tremendous pressure to do some things which could have been rather extreme. And they didn't. They didn't fall for that. And, and uh, I like the spirit in which it's done. And then fasting and fast offerings. There's a note here. 
that our present fast offerings are only providing two-thirds of the needs of the poor, and our people are not living this principle properly. So that was good to know. I didn't know whether it was one-third or two-thirds, but the first presence, he said, our saints ought to know that the fast is not fulfilling its intended need. Sex education in the schools. Following statement is made by the First Presidency on this subject. We believe that serious hazards are involved in entrusting the schools to the teaching with the teaching of this vital and important subject to our children. This responsibility cannot wisely be left to society, nor the schools, nor can it be shifted to the church. It is the responsibility of parents, that's where the Lord placed it, and that's where it must remain. Now, physiology is one thing, sex education is something else. And most of the schools, uh, uh, I know when I was growing up, we got physiology, the girls had gone to the girls' gym, the boys had gone to the boys' gym, and uh, <laughs> I give us a little physiology uh, about all of us. And it, and it was very worthwhile, and uh, we had our coaches usually discuss it, and it was wisely and prudently done. Um, they're having a rather serious impact now, however, on sex education because there are some uh, zealots that have gotten in on the operation, like, uh, what's the woman's name that started Secus? Uh, Mrs. Uh, no, not Margaret Mead, although she, she has the same attitude. Anyway, there should be no restrictions on it at all. All this business about what God is supposed to have said, that's pure superstition, and, and the quicker you get over those kind of guilt feelings of offending God, the better. Uh, isn't that aggravating? So close, can't quite tip it over. Um, but anyway, this woman, uh, if she appeared in this, uh, she'd come in, she's very refined in appearance. And if she came up here, she uses very precise English, and she's just the personification of a gracious, lovely lady. You should hear that woman in a circle of her own friends. The filth that falls off of her lips uh, partakes of the gutter. This is an act with her. And she's the president of Seekers. Uh, the, the mind is filthy, and when she comes in and puts on this air, which is very deceptive, she appeared in Utah two or three years ago, uh, I couldn't believe it when I found out how she really was and how she really talked. To people heard a recording of a talk that she'd given in a close intimate circle of friends all the four-letter words were spilling out in every direction no refinement whatever and then Secus itself you know advocates most of the perversions as being legitimate and so the brethren have just simply said we're moving into the Sodom and Gomorrah epic this is the Sodom and Gomorrah epic the Savior talked about and if you want to maintain the purity and the beauty of the relationship between men and women, do it the Lord's way, and teach it the Lord's way, and we'll be all right. It cannot be delegated, even to the church. And then it has uh, family sacrament services. These are never to be conducted, it says, unless the family is too far distant to be able to attend the meeting and otherwise miss the sacrament service, then it's only be to, to be administered if there's a member of the family that has the priesthood and is worthy to administer to the sacrament. No people outside of the covenant uh, are to be present um, because it can only be done as a family union, which is a 
it says a recognized union of the church. It can function as a family. But if, if it's more than the family, then there is no authority to have a, a sacrament service without specific permission. And let's see, I think those were the highlights. The rest are technical administrative matters. Except restoration of blessings. If a person is excommunicated who has been through the temple, he cannot enjoy any of his previous rites, including the priesthood, without a special ordinance called the restoration of the blessings, which must be by the first presidency or a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, someone acting or an assistant, someone acting by their authority. If a person is excommunicated who has not been through the temple, when they are rebaptized, if it is a man, he goes up to the priesthood ranks um, just as though he were starting all over again. If a person has been through the temple, all of their blessings, the temple and the priesthood, can be restored if and when the first presidency can approve it, which is usually not quick. And they cannot start from the bottom and be ordained and come on up. They have to wait for the ordinance of restoration of blessings, because they're under the sealing covenant. Any question on that one? Yes. No, not necessarily. But it's by laying on of hands, by one acting in the name of the First Presidency. It's a very sacred ordinance. Okay, I think this story, say it was a, a high priest. Is he a high priest? Yes, if his blessings are restored. He's back all the way. Now, if they won't give you the restoration of blessings, as happened to one of our apostles who fell, uh, they, they let him be rebaptized. He was terribly repentant. It was a... Uh, such a heartbreak for, the, for him. <clears throat> they never restored his blessings, but they did allow him to be ordained a deacon. That's as high as he went prior to his death. Now, let's see. I think that's about everything that's significant in that. Any questions, comments? Now, I'm sure you've um, caught the feeling of this great personality that we're dealing with and you can see why he became one of the hero figures that was uh, uh, borrowed by the Greeks and several of the other ancient peoples. Um, um, this David was like Moses. He became well known throughout all the civilized world. And other nations adopted him and took over his stories and so forth of his life. And in Greek mythology, you can find many of the things that Moses did and that David did woven into their stories. And... Um, some good scholarship is now being done finding that the books that were written about 1875 showing how Judaism and Christianity had borrowed its culture from the Babylonians, etc., is now turning out to be just the opposite. Good scholarship is demonstrating that they borrowed it from the prophets of God. Uh, we're finding out that Socrates was... Um, consigned to death because he went down into Israel, met the prophets, he immediately recognized the value of much that they were teaching, uh, well, I shouldn't say the prophets, but he met the, um, the people of Israel, took it back to Greece, and they said, you will destroy the traditions of the fathers, drink the hemlock, you're condemned to die. And of course, Plato, who was his disciple, and whose relatives were sentencing Socrates to death just just couldn't reconcile himself with what was happening. And so he tried to go out for something different as a substitute for, more, for what Socrates had come up with, and he tried to go the route of Sparta, 
so that in case you have children you don't like, you think they're inferior, you kill them, you see. Uh, women have to um, bear the same burdens as men, total equal rights, no more, no less. They have to be drafted and go to war. Uh, they have to do all the work that men do. Uh, there will be no family life anymore. This is the Republic that you heard about. Any of you read the Republic, Plato's Republic? Three or four of you have. That used to be a requirement. Um, much of what um, the collectivist mentality is foisting on the world today comes right out of Plato, which is to completely destroy the family life, morality, um, the, the um, economic and uh, political foundation that our Heavenly Father has suggested from time to time. All this is destroyed by Plato. The fantastic thing about it is that 40 years after he wrote it, he wrote his book, The Laws, in which he repudiated half of it, and Aristotle repudiated the other half. So the Republic is held up as a classic when it represents some of the worst of Greek thinking, not the best. And I, I, I watch people who just drool at the feet of Plato. They worship at the feet of Plato because he said in the beginning of his book, I'm searching for human justice. So they thought this must be a wonderful man. And I think he, he did have many wonderful attributes. But he came up with the very worst of what Satan has tried to foist on the human family from time immemorial. And when you get time, read it. In fact, I'm getting, if I ever get enough time to finish it, I have a book called Plato's Republic Revisited. And I just let the student hear in synopsized form the things that Plato advocated for the perfect society. And in practice, it turns out to be, for human beings, about the worst thing that you can do. And the Equal Rights Bill takes quite a number of its basic tenets right out of the Republic. Real interesting. All right. <clears throat> David, um, after having been uh, forced, first out of his own uh, land, then out of the city of uh, Gath by King Achish, uh, went to the to his stronghold, gathered his men about him, found that his own family was being prosecuted, uh, persecuted. So his three nephews joined his military force, and his mother and father were dropped off with whom? <coughs> the king of the Moabites, who were distant relatives of uh, David on his mother's side through Ruth. And then he comes back because Gad, the prophet, who suddenly aligned himself with David, said, It is the will of the Lord that you stay around Judah. So he went to the forest of Harath, like Robin Hood of old, and there he kind of hid out. Until um, one of the local communities there um, <clears throat> began to be attacked by Philistines, and David couldn't endure that. <clears throat> because they'd come up right at harvest time, and they'd um, take the wheat and so forth in little guerrilla raids. And um, so he decided he'd try and do something about it, and he did. And he was very successful. He routed the Philistines, and they knew that it hadn't better come up anymore to Keilah, to uh, Keliah. See, did I say that right? That's a, I have to look at it again. <clears throat> yeah, Keilah, it's pronounced. <clears throat> so he saved the town. Then he heard that um, Saul was ready to come after him. Now, he thought maybe if he's going to have to make a stand against Saul, he ought to have some city from which he can have a fortified position. So he, he inquires of the Lord whether these people will support him. Will they? No, they will not. And um, 
since they will not support him, he's got to take up another position. Now, something had happened just prior to this was, that was terrible. And uh, we kind of remember the map in our minds. Here's the city of Jerusalem, so to speak, which is on top of Mount Moriah, actually on three peaks with the Mount of Olives over here, looking over the whole thing, the tallest of the three mountains. And right up here is Gibeah, within sight of Jerusalem. And down here is Nob, where the tabernacle was, not very far away. Here is Ramah, which is Samuel's home, just uh, across the valley, a mile or so, it's not very far. And then up here is Gibeon. Now that's Gibeah, the capital, Samuel's home, and that's Gibeon. Now that's a very special city. Because when Joshua was conquering this territory about 1450 BC, which you see is 450 years before now, as they came up out of Jericho and they way down 3,000 feet down the road, in fact further than that, because Jericho is nearly 1,300 feet below sea level, they came up here and the Lord says, Offer those heathens peace and a higher law. These five nations, if they reject the peace and the law, are to die. I want them all sent back to the spirit world. I am just weary of sending my choice spirits down to them and having them burn their children or pervert them, have them indulged in sex worship and all this that's been so terrible. Those five nations I want back in the spirit world unless they will be subject to the higher law. So Joshua comes up full of resolution, you know, sends his troops up here and there. They get about right here. And suddenly a, a party of people with mud on their faces and dust and they got water bags that are cracked that comes from so far away they got old worn out shoes and they come up to the leaders of the Israelite armies and say we speak for our people who wish to be subject to Israel well they said fine that's nice uh, we'll enter into a covenant with you that we will protect you and make you part of us. We'll assign you a certain tribute to support the central government. If you'll be under the higher law, all will be well. They said, oh, thank you, thank you. We have entered into the covenant, and that was it. The army went about 20 miles, came to Gibeon, and here these fellows are. Oh, they've been caught. And uh, so Joshua said, why did you lie? As though you were making a covenant for a people long ways away. Well, they said, we thought you were going to kill everybody around here. We know God has given you this land, and so, um, sorry we lied, but uh, we want to be friends. Well, Joshua says, no problem. We didn't come to destroy. Anyone who come under the higher law and stop burning their children and uh, worshiping sex idols and so forth, all of them are welcome under the new order. Oh, they said, that's nice. Then the word spread to all the other uh, Amorites uh, <clears throat> who were descendants of Ham all through this area. And they decided to wipe out in one great genocidal massacre the people of Gibeon. So they moved in to kill those people. And the Gibeonites sent a word down to Joshua, who had retired back to Jericho, and said, hey, they come to kill us. You know, we're with you. You remember we're with you? <laughs> <coughs> Joshua said, yes, I remember. We'll be right up. So they came up, and here were all these forces attacking little Gibeon. And all the hosts of Israel moved in on these heathen armies. And uh, they were, the battle was coming pretty good. But uh, by mid-afternoon, uh, they couldn't do everything the Lord had told them to do in time. <coughs> and so 
Joshua said to the Lord, uh, it's getting late. There isn't time. The Lord said, well, then <clears throat> keep the sun up there. So he did. And he held the sun in the heavens, and we do not know whether it was by the deflecting of the light or the rather traumatic astronomical event of stopping the earth in its rotation. Seems like it would fall out of the, of the solar system, doesn't it? We don't really know how it was done. All that we know is that there was testimony verified by God himself that the sun stayed right up there, and they fought for several more hours and cleaned out the enemy very thoroughly. They never came back to attack Gibeon again. Now, these people were to provide wood and water for Israel. They've got forests all around there, used to. <clears throat> that was their tribute. And uh, all of a sudden, Saul, uh, had one of his um, uh, weepy days. He was feeling sorry for himself. And he gathered his friends around him and he said, um, everybody's against me. Nobody likes me. My own son even conspires against me. <clears throat> Nobody will tell how I can find this enemy of mine, this reprobate former son-in-law, David. Everybody's against me. And that's when who uh, decided to uh, sort of spill the beans. And, uh, Doreg decided to tell him. Did I see a hand in the back? No hands. And uh, he said, well, I'll tell you. He was down at uh, what town? No, where the, what's located? The tabernacles. That's great. You get over the Holy Land, you know where everything is. And um, I saw him inquire of God for a revelation to get God on his side. And he got a sword, got some food. Oh, Saul says, now we're making progress. So he gathered his courtiers around him went across the valleys, just down the mountain, really, from where he is, or the high hill, and went up, and what was the high priest's name at that time? Ahimelech, a descendant of whom? Eli. And um, he said to Ahimelech, uh, Why have you conspired against me, thou and the son of Jesse? Is it thou hast given him bread and a sword and cried of God for him? And old Ahimelech looked at the king, he obviously doesn't have too much respect for him. And he says, um, And who is so faithful among all thy servants as David, which is the king's son-in-law, and goeth at thy bidding, and is honorable to thine house? And anyway, I didn't, get, I didn't go to God and inquire of him or get him on God's side against you. The sword, yes. The bread, yes. No bread. Unleavened bread. Well, Saul was not reasonable at all. The fact that David had been so loyal to him meant nothing now. Jonathan had used it and appealed to his reason earlier, but not now. Now he said, I, I think you're a traitor. And so he said to his foot soldiers, kill him and kill everybody in this town. Everybody. Men, women, and children, and all the animals. Just kill him. Not a soldier move. You're going to strike the priests of the people. So I looked around in desperation and Doreg, you're, you're faithful, you're loyal. You at least told me what was going on. You take over. So he apparently had a few followers. He was in charge of the, he was steward and probably in charge of the shepherds and had some followers. And they fell on the old priest and killed him and then went out and killed 85 altogether. And men, women, and children, nobody escaped from Nob except a few 
one of them being Ahimelech's son named Abiathar. Abiathar. We say Abiathar, but phonetically in the Hebrew it's Abiathar. So we'll, we'll use that. And um, Abiathar went the one place that was logical for him to go. Where? Down to David. And he took with him a very sacred uh, garment. What was it? The ephod. And the ephod had on the front of it, held by two chains from the shoulder, a cloth, a beautiful cloth breastplate. But it wasn't a plate of metal. It was a plate of cloth. had a pocket inside, 12 stones on the front of it, each one representing a tribe. And inside the pocket of this breastplate was held what? The Urim and the Thummim. And um, in our third thousand years, those of you who were not with me last semester, in the appendix we have everything the church knows about the Urim and Thummim and the breastplate that came with the Urim and Thummim that was given to Joseph Smith for the translation of the Book of Mormon. Um, so he began receiving revelations for David, although it makes no mention of the Urim and Thummim. It just mentions that he had the sacred uh, priestly garment with which the Urim and Thummim are usually associated. Now, if you'll, if you'll compare the time when Moses and Aaron had the Urim and Thummim with the time in America when the Jaredites had it, you'll see that they're, they're parallel, requiring two instruments, two sets. May have been many more. Maybe the ten tribes have a set. Um, the set that, um, that Joseph Smith received, we think, is the same one that existed before the flood Mahalalil used the Urim and Thummim before the flood, the only reference we have to it. Um, and um, after the flood, about 200 years after the flood, the Urim and Thummim that ended up in America was given to um, um, Gazalim, or Mahanrai Moriankabar, the brother of Jared. And that was passed down until the Jaredites were annihilated 250 B.C., and about 225 B.C. it spilled over and was given to um, Mosiah the first. Then to his son Benjamin, then Mosiah the second, then to Alma, then to Helaman, and then to Helaman the second, then to Nephi the second, then Nephi the third, then Nephi the fourth. And it finally ended up in the hands of Mormon and Moroni, who buried it in the hill Cumorah and came into our hands in modern times. And a person who has access to the Urim and Thummim is called a seer. A seer. And the church is led today by prophets, seers, and revelators. Now Saul wanted to set up a new religious center. And uh, so he decided, since this was wiped out of all population, probably burned in the process, though it doesn't mention it, he decided he would select Gibeon. And here were these poor uh, people. They'd never had to fight for centuries. Uh, the Israelites had protected them. They were their benefactors. And all of a sudden, Saul's army moves in on him, on them. And they're massacred. Wiped out. Whole village. And many of them escaped, we later learn. But after David became king, these people demanded the lives of Saul's sons and grandsons that were still alive who participated in that massacre and uh, demanded they be executed, and they were. Now, he then transferred the tabernacle 
appeared and selected a new high priest named Zadok, who was a direct descendant of Eliezer and who really was the rightful heir to the uh, high priest's office at that time. Yes, he did. We'll come to that. He did. And, and, uh, um, the Lord indi indicated that it should be done. So he did. We'll come to that in a little while. In other words, the Lord said there'll be famine until that justice is provided. So when, when David made the covenant with Saul in the last part of the chapter you just read, um, he didn't have, he wasn't going to wipe out Saul's family. He, what he wanted was Michelle back as a wife. And Jonathan was his best friend. He didn't, he didn't have anything against Saul's family. But after he became king, the Lord let it be known that those who had participated in the massacre should justly be returned to the spirit world. And they were. No. We have no indication that he did in any event. The ones that did come participate are named later in the scripture. And uh, we assume they were the ones that um, were guilty. Zadok is a descendant of Aaron through his third son. Aaron had four sons. Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer was the third. And, and um, naturally, what happened to the first two? They were both killed for trying to offer heathen fire in the tabernacle. This made the Eliezer the rightful heir. The fourth son, however, had many descendants, and Eli actually came through this line. Where did Abiathar therefore come through? Great great grandson of was a great grandson of Eli. So Abiathar is here, and Zadok is here. Now Zadok was a righteous man. Abiathar apparently was too. And so when David became king, he just allowed them to um, work side by side. Abiathar tripped, however, eventually, and Zadok became the only king, the only high priest ultimately. But anyway, for a while they served together. Um, one serving under Saul, one under David, and then when David took over, they both served under David. Yes. Right. Well, mostly it's um, a question of channels. Uh, the Lord does this all the time. Uh, if there's something in your own jurisdiction, why the Lord uh, can reveal it to you. But if he has something that <clears throat> is for the general welfare of all the people, he'll send it through a channel. He always does. That's his order. <clears throat> now later, when, when David gets hired, you'll notice that when it comes to building the new temple, he gets the revelation. How about um, Dad? Was he also yes, Gad was a prophet at that time, too. But he was not the high priest. But it was... He received revelations before Abiathar arrived for David. It's mostly a, a question of, of channels, I think. Now, um, since Keila, and let's see if I can do my chalk now. Mediterranean Sea, 
Dead Sea, Jordan River, Mount Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Hebron. Now, Keilah is about right up here. It's actually in the mountains, but you can come up um, uh, Elah Valley very readily get up to Keilah. Right down below here is a mountain and a village at the foot of it called Ziph. And that's where David went, and uh, it's just full of caves, limestone caves, wonderful place to hide out. So that's where he, he was hiding with his men, and Saul came down, having heard about the battle of Keilah, and he knew that uh, David was down there. So he came down, he looked around everywhere, trying to find David and his 600. Did he find him? Pretty soon he got bored and weary, went home. One person stayed, who was it? Jonathan. And um, he and David made contact, which is the last time they ever meet, that we know of. And uh, covered with each other, and the greatness of Jonathan comes out now. About how much older do we estimate Jonathan to be than David? A good 10 to 12 years, right along in there. And um, he was humble enough. He always had been a humble man. And he was humble enough to say, Fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find thee. Thou shalt be king over Israel, and I shall be next unto thee. That really tells you something about Jonathan, doesn't it? He's the crown prince. He's older. But that was his statement to David. Courage, David. You were anointed. You'll be the king. And I want to help you. I want to be right. You're great. I want to be with you. Well, by this time, it probably was well known. Seems to you see, he knew that he was to be king, so he, it, it, uh, he apparently had known for quite some time. Uh, these men were very close, and he said, "Fear not, thou shalt be king, and I'm going to be next to you." So somewhere along the line, he got the word. Um, now, it wasn't very long before um, he had shifted his position and gone just a little bit below Ziph. And the people of Ziph decided to betray David, and they said to Saul, this time if you come, you'll really get him. So there, he's down at this other mountain this time, and what happened? What happened to uh, Saul's troops? Were they able to, to get him this time? Almost. They were just going to close in on David and the 600. They had him cornered. You go around Mount both ways, and it's a 1,500-foot drop. You can get a person. And they had him cornered, and lo and behold, what happened? Messenger came and said, Philistines are coming. You couldn't do it better with a... Um, well, Hollywood wouldn't do it any better. That's right. <laughs> I was going to say, it's a Douglas Fairbanks special, if any of you have been watching the silent films on TV lately. It reminds me very much of that incident in uh, the Book of Mormon, where you have Gideon, uh, sick and tired of this murderous King Noah, duels him all the way up to the top of the high tower that was next to the temple, got him right up on the top, and they're dueling away, and, and wicked old King Noah looks out and says, Oh, Lamanites, Lamanites, they're coming, they're coming. Let me go down and rally the people. Spoiled again. So um, Gideon says, All right, go down and rally the people. Well, what did he do? He went down there and rallied the men and said, Let's go. And they left their wives and their children. It was terrible. Yeah, that's another story. <clears throat> so um, 
This time he barely escaped, and after Saul had gone, then he decided it was time to go back to Engidi, to go to Engidi. That was probably one of the finest places he could hide. Now, Engidi is just about, oh, nearly 1,400 feet drop, uh, right down over these mountains. These mountains go right over to the Dead Sea. All the Dead Sea Scrolls have been hidden along here. Uh, the Qumran uh, find is right there. And there are caves all along here in these limestone pits all along the Dead Sea. And Dead Sea Scrolls were in them. Some of them put there very carefully, others just thrown in. And um, the um, animal excretions over the centuries coated them. And that's what preserved them. Animal excretions. So that when they found them, they just looked like tar. They had to be very carefully soaked. And uh, infrared and other things had to be used to decipher them. But um, Dr. Saad, uh, who's uh, often had us there, the, he's Arab and been in charge of a lot of these finds, has taken us back into his laboratories and watched some of these things being carefully unfolded. And they were actually preserved by the animal excretions which accumulated over the centuries. In any event, the, the, uh, the little oasis is about right here, 600 feet above the sea, 1,400 feet below the cliffs. And it was there that Saul made his next attack. He had one of these schizophrenic uh, splits, and down he came with 3,000 men. He's going to get David this time for sure after just... Uh, uh, abandoning him not so long ago and kind of saying, well, that's, that's that. Now he thinks he's really going to get them, get him. And when he left his troops, when Saul left his troops, wandered off by himself into this cave where he lay down to sleep, it's the very cave where David is. And you've heard this story since you were children. How David's servant said, now you got him. He's asleep. You have the honor of plunging the dagger. And uh, so David, dagger in hand, he creeps over there, raises it up, and cuts off a big hunk of cloak. Stupid. <laughs> His associates thought of all the silly, ridiculous things. There the man that wants to murder you is lying asleep. you got a dagger in your hand, and you cut off a piece of cloak. And so he, he, it was kind of interesting. He got way back, and then he waited until Saul went outside and got up or down so far that probably down, uh, that um, he couldn't get up at David fast. And then he said, My lord the king! Saul turned about. He saw David humbly bowing to the earth, up where he was. The younger man cried out, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt? Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord had delivered thee today into mine hand in the cave. Some bade me kill thee, but mine eyes spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not. Know thou, and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in mine hand, and I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. The old king said, Is this thy voice, my son David? Obviously it was. The old king began to cry. He cried. We've got a shift in the split, you see. We're now on the other side. Almost as though we were suffering from what modern psychology calls schizophrenia, Saul now changed from his posture of hate and murder to a childlike and almost guileless humility. 
Thou art more, more righteous than I, he shouted. For thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded the evil. Thou hast showed this day how that thou hast dealt well with me, for as much as when the Lord hath delivered me into thine hand, thou killest me not. I know well thou shalt surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. All I ask is that thou shalt swear that thou wilt not cut off my seed after me, and that thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. That's the covenant. And of course, David thought of Michelle and Jonathan. He's not going to kill his seed. And as you'll see later, he does everything he can to honor the house of Saul through Jonathan. The others do get killed who participated in that genocidal attack. Now at this time we had Samuel dying. And there, there's a rather heartbreak story, the life of Samuel. I just wanted to remind you of a summary of it. A man who'd been ruler of the people under the priesthood, a chief judge whose sons had apostatized, got his father in trouble, and had the priesthood rejected as a method of government, replaced by a monarchy which had been a failure ever since it started. And then we have that wonderful story about Abigail and that terrible husband of hers, Nabal. And uh, she, she was a real choice woman. She saw these two men about to quarrel, and the way she approached David, that was choice indeed. And he had an eye for beauty and appreciated a good woman when he saw her. So as soon as she was a widow, why, he took the necessary steps to remove her widowhood. <laughs>